we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. I'd like for you to take God's word and go with me, if you would please, to the book of 2 Samuel. And we come this morning to the 8th chapter, 2 Samuel chapter number 8. And uh, for those of you who may be visiting with us or haven't been with us recently, uh, we are in the middle of a study of the life of David. And uh, we began uh, many weeks ago uh, with this study. In fact, this is the 35th message on the life of David. And so for 35 Sundays, with a few intervals in between, breaks where we've looked at other subjects, uh, we continue our study of the life of David. And as we come to chapter number eight, it is on the heels of God's promise to David that he would build for David a house. Remember David's desire that he expressed was that he could build a house for the Lord place where the ark of God could rest and uh, the Lord of course through the message of Nathan the prophet told David that uh, he would not build that house but that David's son could build that house but as it was in the heart of David to build a house for the Lord it was in the heart of God as he promised to David that he would build a house for him not a physical house necessarily for him to live in but a family lineage and a heritage. And through David, uh, there would be a king to sit upon the throne of the nation of Israel. Uh, That king ultimately, of course, is Jesus, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And uh, the Lord has promised uh, since the beginning of of, uh, time when man sinned in the garden, God has promised that he would send a redeemer, the seed of the woman, as he promised in Genesis chapter 3, that he would send a, a son who would redeem us of our sin, who would crush the head of the devil. And uh, that promise then was extended through Abraham when the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 12, through thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I'm going to give you a family. Abraham, and from your family will arise a great nation, and in the midst of that nation, one will arise who will deliver us from our sin. That promise was narrowed down in in Genesis chapter 49 when Jacob said that it would be through uh, the tribe of Judah that the scepter would not depart. In other words, the king would come from the tribe of Judah. And then as we come now to uh, 2 Samuel, Uh, we find that in chapter 7, the Lord gave further clarity of that promise that not only would he come through the seed of Judah, but through the lineage of David, who was of the tribe of Judah, that a king would rule and a king would reign. And we understand who that king is. That king was born, as was prophesied in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, and he lived a perfect sinless life. And died on the cross to make the payment for your sins and mine. And on the third day, he arose from the dead to die no more, victorious over death and hell and the grave. 
And he offers to us eternal life. And as we have sung this morning, he is coming again. The angel said to the disciples, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus shall come again in like manner as ye have seen him go. And so we know because of the promise of God's word that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, we understand that he will establish his throne upon the earth. That the Lord Jesus Christ will govern this earth as king for a period of a thousand years. Imagine that. You talk about, uh, you're talking about good government. We're going to have the Son of God governing this earth for a thousand years. No more political campaigns or commercials. There is one sitting on the throne and his name is Jesus and that promise was extended to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as we noted last week, David was amazed and his heart was filled with praise to God and he offered his prayer. And we found that David's chief desire was not for his own personal uh, acknowledgement or his own personal promotion, but for the glory of God. In his prayer, he revealed this, that he desired the glory of God. Now we come to chapter number 8, and we begin to see God's promises that he made to him in chapter 7 are beginning to be fulfilled. And as we look at this, we're going to find that there is a historical perspective for us. David, of course, was the king of Israel. There is a prophetic uh, perspective for us to understand that the kingdom of David speaks of a greater kingdom, the kingdom that I just mentioned to you, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then personally, it speaks to us because if he is our king, what does that look like in our lives? You see, he's our Lord. We, we've trusted him uh, for our soul salvation. And as our Lord and Savior, he is also our sovereign. In other words, he has, uh, he has the right to rule and to reign in our lives, to, to make the decisions, to, to govern us. And he governs us by his word and, and by his Holy Spirit. And so we're going to get a glimpse in 2 Samuel chapter number 8 of what that ought to look like in our lives. And so let's look at it together. We begin reading here in verse number 1. And after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them with a the line, casting them down to the ground, even with two lines measured he to put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. And David smote also Hadad Ezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots and seven hundred horsemen and twenty thousand footmen. And David hucked, mean, uh, hucked all the chariot horses, but reserved of them for an hundred chariots. Now the word hucked there is a word that we don't typically use. In fact, I don't know if I've ever used that word. But let me explain what it means to you. It means to disable by hamstringing a horse. So they, they, they disabled the horses by hamstringing the horses. These were the, the horses that were going to be used in battle against them. And so David disabled those horses. Verse 5, 
And when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David slew of the Syrians two and 20,000 men. Let me just back up and explain the word succor. It's a term that we don't often use today, but it is a term which means to help, to come aside, to come alongside, and to strengthen, and to help. And so the Syrians came to help Hadad-Ezer, and because of that, uh, David slew of the Syrians two and 20,000 men. Verse six, then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betta and from Barathai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took exceeding much brass. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadad-Ezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, unto King David to salute him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and smitten him. For Hadad-Ezer had wars with Toy. And Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations which he subdued of Syria and of Moab and of the children of Ammon and of the Philistines and of Amalek and of the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David gave him a name when he returned from smiting of the Syrians in the valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom put he garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. And David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the host. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. And Sariah was the scribe, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief rulers." I want you to notice the expression that we come to in verse number 15. The Bible said, and David reigned over all Israel. We find that David is the king. And as the king, with the promises of God and the presence of God and the power of God, David is ruling as under the Lord. David acknowledges and he recognizes that while he is an earthly king, that ultimately he has a heavenly king. And that king is the Lord. And he is reigning and ruling with the Lord's interest in mind. He has submitted to the rule of God in his life. And therefore, he is now able to reign over the nation of Israel. As I said a moment ago, this speaks to us historically. It speaks to us prophetically of Christ. And it speaks to us personally concerning uh, our relationship with the Lord Jesus and our responsibility to subject ourselves, to submit ourselves to his rule in our lives. Now, he deserves the right to rule us because he is our creator. He made us. He made us in his image and according to his glory. But then man sinned against God and rebelled against God. And if we are in our sin today, we are living a life in rebellion to the Lord Jesus. And as a result of that rebellion, the Lord Jesus came and died on the cross, giving us a term of peace 
so that we might be reconciled to him. So he has the right to rule us, number one, because he is our creator. But number two, if we know him as Savior, because he is our redeemer. And we are to submit to his rule and his reign in our lives. And David gives us a wonderful example of that here in 2 Samuel chapter number 8. And also we have a wonderful picture of what we will see when the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns upon this earth. And we'll understand that God is at work even today in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this chaos and this uncertainty in our world. Let me just tell you that God is at work and that God's purposes will be established and we can rest on his promises. And so we'll note some things in this passage. And I, I hope if you have a pen and a pad, and I always encourage you to do that, be ready to write some things down. First of all, number one, I want you to see that David subdued the enemies of the Lord. David subdued the enemies of the Lord. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter number eight and look at verse number one. And after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. Then in verse 2, he smote Moab and measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground. Even with two lines measured he to put to death and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. Uh, then we note in verse 3, And David smote also Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots and 700 horsemen and 20,000 footmen. And David hucked all the chariot horses, but reserved of them for an hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David slew of the Syrians two and 20,000 men. So we get the picture here that David is a warrior. We understand that he's a warrior. We've been studying his life. He's been fighting battles. He fought the battles of Israel. He delivered them uh, from the oppression of the Philistines. He slew Goliath. He fought many battles on behalf of the nation of Israel. And here's what we need to understand about these enemies. David is not just a man who loves war. He's not some bloodthirsty tyrant. No, David is the king of Israel leading the people of God under the authority of the Lord himself. And the battles that David is fighting are the battles of the Lord. Now Saul, his problem when he was the king is he began well fighting the battles of the Lord, but eventually he began to fight his own battles. He began to fight only the battles that mattered to him. He disregarded the Lord's battles and he took up personal battles and got involved in things that he should have never been involved in. It became, in Saul's life, his reign became uh, something uh, that was centered upon his life. But David understood the importance to center his rule, his reign as king, around the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Now, wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't it be good if we had rulers in Washington or in Raleigh uh, who centered their lives and their leadership around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Wouldn't it be good if they would set aside their own personal interests and their selfish interests and, and they considered the interests of the people? I would tell you that our nation would be in far better shape today if that were true. And uh, we will continue 
uh, to see this cycle in our nation until Jesus comes. But he will come, and he will rule, and he will reign. And when he comes, he will, like David, subdue his enemies. So David is not some bloodthirsty tyrant of a king. He is a king in subjection to the Lord and in obedience to him. Now we see this, first of all, with the Philistines. And we know as we've studied the word of God that the Philistines have plagued the Israelites uh, before the life of David for hundreds of years. And the Philistines, if you remember in 1 Samuel, when they, when they captured the ark of God in battle, the ark signifying the glory of God and the presence of God, they took that ark and they put it into one of the temples of their pagan gods, Dagon. And, and they, they came back to the temple the next day and they found Dagon had fallen over. Dagon had fallen over in the presence of the true and the living God. The idols of this world will not stand against the true and the living God. Well, what did they do? They, pumped, they, put, they put Dagon back in his place. You have, to, you have to pop up and prop up those idols. And so they came back the next day, and how did they find Dagon? Well, he had fallen again, but this time, guess what? His hands and his, his, uh, his uh, feet, they, they were cut off, and, and God is showing his supremacy. And then he began to plague the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines realized that the, the Lord God of Israel was too powerful for them. And so they put uh, the, the, the ark of God on a cart, and they sent it back to Israel. Now, here's what the Philistines were confronted with, and this is the point I want you to understand. They were confronted with the true and the living God. They were, they were confronted with the truth that their idols were nothing, but that God, the God of Israel, was the true and the living God. So when confronted with that, they had, they had a response that they could make. Number one, they could choose to submit to the true and the living God and repent of their sin and turn to him. Or, number two, they could choose to rebel against God and continue in their idolatry. Well, they chose to rebel against God and continue in their idolatry. And because they chose to rebel, ultimately, when David became the king, they faced the judgment of God. And let me just say this. Our world is in rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. But one day, when Jesus comes again, I want you to understand, he's not coming this time to extend mercy. That's happening right now. The Lord Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And right now, during this age we call the church age, he is extending mercy and grace to all who will call upon him. But there is coming a time when the mercy and grace period will come to an end and the Lord Jesus Christ will come. And when he comes, he's coming with a sword and he's coming in judgment. And David here prefigures for us that coming of the Lord. He is removing the enemies of God from the land. He is fighting not his personal battles. He's not fighting a battle because he's some bloodthirsty man. He is fighting a battle because he is in obedience to the Lord. And he comes against the Philistines. He smote them. That means that he struck them down to the ground and he subdued them. That word means to humiliate or to humble them. I want you to know that the kingdoms of this world are going to be humbled in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have one of two choices. You can bow the knee to him now. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what the Bible tells us. You can choose to bow to him now. And, and find mercy, or you will bow to him later and be judged. 
Well, they were humbled. He took their capital, Methagamo, the capital. That, that city, the name of that city literally means a horse's bridle. What happens here? David takes the reins. I want you to know Jesus is going to take the reins of this world. He's going to rule upon this earth and establish his eternal kingdom. And so we find here that David is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. As one preacher said, this is not an option for David, it's an obligation. Because the enemies that he was fighting, they were the enemies of God. Now we see how he deals with Moab. And remember this, or, or just note this, the Philistine land was the land to the west of Israel. Now, that land was designated for Israel, but the Philistines had occupied it in disobedience. And the Israelites, in disobedience, had not fought the battles that they needed to fight and, and, and acquired the land that God gave them. But we find that David did not stop there. He smote the land of Moab. You see it in verse 2. So the Philistines were to the west. Moab is to the south and east on the other side of the Dead Sea. And he smote Moab and measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground, even with two lines, measured he to put to death and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became servants, or David's servants, and brought gifts. Now, if you'll remember, the Moabites were the people that uh, tried to hire a prophet to curse the people of Israel. And that prophet, though he tried to curse them, could not curse them, and in fact pronounced a curse on Moab. He said in Numbers 24 and verse 17, you may want to look this up a little later, he said that uh, a scepter will come out of Judah. He will arise out of Israel and out of Judah, and he will, or out of Israel rather, a scepter shall arise out of Israel, and it will crush uh, the head of Moab. Well, he's speaking here ultimately of the Lord Jesus. And David, of course, has the scepter. He's the king, and he is overthrowing the Moabites. And we find that David smote two-thirds of them, and he allowed a third of them to remain alive, and they became his servants. Now, when we read that, we might bristle against that and wonder, well, what in the world was David so cruel for or was he actually being cruel? Well, no, the truth of the matter is, is that David is fighting, as I mentioned a moment ago, he's not fighting his own battles. He's not being a tyrannical person. He is fighting the Lord's battles. You see, the Lord had given the land of Israel over to the Israelites. And these people, the Philistines and the Moabites, they had, had been given opportunity after opportunity to repent and turn to God. But now it is the time of judgment. And as John Woodhouse writes in his commentary, as we approach this passage, he says, Our task as humble Bible readers is to learn from the text of Scripture, not to make our own independent moral judgments of what we find there. We should recognize that the righteousness and justice of God's kingdom includes his judgment on all rebellion against him. In his mercy, this judgment may be held back for a time giving opportunity for repentance. But as was the case with the Moabites, the day will come when God will judge the world in righteousness. Let us not abuse the patience of God by failing to heed the warnings of the gospel concerning the righteous judgment to come. What happened to the Moabites should serve as a warning to us. John Calvin wrote concerning this passage and said, The stringency which David exercised against the Moabites ought not to be considered cruelty, 
but to be considered a just judgment of God since they had abused his long patience and had mocked him. Oh, listen, we're living in a world that is abusing his long patience, a world that is mocking him. And because of that, the time for mercy had run out. It was now time for judgment. And just so we know the proper view of God in God's heart, in Ezekiel 18 and verse 22, or verse 23 rather, he says, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? You see, God says, my desire is that the wicked would repent of their sin and live and not die. Ezekiel 33 and verse 11. Here was the message he gave to the prophets, saying to them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Peter would write that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God is not a God who seeks to bring death to people. He is a God who who wants to give life to people. That's why he sent his son. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and have life more abundantly. But those who rebel against him will receive death. He said, I have no pleasure, Ezekiel 33, 11. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Then he says, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways For why will ye die, O house of Israel? He's speaking to the rebels within uh, the nation of Israel. And so we find that God is a God who desires for people to repent. He's extending mercy, but a day of judgment is coming. And what is David doing? He's executing that judgment. We see him continue with Hadad-Ezer in verse number 3. Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of of Zobah, The region of Zobah was situated to the north and to the east of Israel. In the region of the Euphrates River, it belonged to the people of God, but they had not claimed it for their possession. Verse 5, when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor Hadad-Ezer, to succor Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David slew the Syrians, two and 20,000 men. So here we see David's military might. He is defeating all of these armies, which are greater in number, which have greater resources than his army, but he has one resource that they did not have, and it's the only one that mattered. He had the presence and power of God. And I want to say this to you this morning. We have the church has the presence and power of God. We have something that this world does not have. And we find, as Alan Redpath notes in his book, The Making of a Man of God, he writes here, he says, Here David possessed for the first time in history the whole territory, all the land that God promised to Abraham. And when he set and established the borders and gave those borders to Joshua before he led the people in, and he divided the land to the tribes for an inheritance, he's saying here, Redpath is saying, this is the first time in the history of the nation of Israel that they finally possessed the whole territory. He said, not content with the bit that he held, David went out and methodically took possession of all that God had promised to his people, Israel. You see, the theme of the book of Joshua is possessing your possessions. But the sad truth is that they did not possess all of their possessions. When David became king, 
He sought to possess them, and he went to fight. And he won the battles, and he, and he drove out the enemy, and the nation of Israel possessed all that God had for them. Do you know that this earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof? And he will have it. He will rule, and he will reign, and he will subdue his enemies. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But personally, let me ask you a question. If he's the king of your life, if he's your creator and your redeemer, which he is, does he not have the right then to possess all of you? All of you. Your body, your soul, does he not have the right to demand your devotion? As the Philistines dwelt in the land of Canaan all those years, let me ask, what bad habits, what sins, what attitudes, what bitterness, what resentment, what unforgiveness, what carnal thoughts have we allowed to dwell in our hearts all these years that oppress us, that resist us, that hold us back? What attitudes have we developed that are selfish and sinful? That, 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 what, what, what desires do we hold to that would lead us from the truth of Christ? You see, if he reigns, then he reigns over all. And he has the right to possess us. And therefore, we should yield to him and submit to him, and we should be willing to resist the devil. We should be willing to gain ground for him, to confess our sin, to allow the blood of Christ to cleanse us of our sin, and to allow the Holy Spirit to occupy every chamber of our heart, every area of our lives, because he is our sovereign and he reigns over all. The Bible tells us in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You see, I think we get the attitude that sometimes we're just, you know, these, this, is the, this is me and this is who I am and these are the habits I have and these are the, the sins that are common to me and, 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 and we just kind of learn to live with it. But Jesus is never content to live with it. Jesus has, has won the victory for us over sin and death. And we can yield, as Romans chapter 6 tells us. We, we, we do not have to allow sin, Romans 6, 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. You see, who's on the throne of your life? Is it sin or is it Jesus? Is it Satan or is it the Lord? Is it you or is it him? He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you for ye are not under the law, but under grace. I've got good news for you. The Lord has the power to deliver you from every sinful temptation and practice and attitude. Are you willing to obey God? You see, obedience is the key to unleashing the power of God in your life and living in the victory that Christ has won for you. So if Christ reigns in your life, number one, the enemies of the Lord will be subdued. 
Now, let me give you the second thing that characterized the reign of David. And it ought to characterize the reign of Christ in our lives. Number two, David dedicated the spoil unto the Lord. Now, when a man goes into battle, a nation goes into battle, they, they win the battle, they conquer the, the foe, then there are the spoils of the battle, the treasures and the riches that become uh, the possession of the conquering army. So we see that in verse 7. And David took shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and Arbeta and from Barathai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took exceeding much brass. So in victory, what happened? David took the shields of gold. Imagine how much those were worth. Shields of gold. No doubt millions and millions of dollars in our terms. And exceeding much brass. And because he defeated them, we see in verse 9, another king came. His name is Toy, king of Hamath. And he heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadad-Ezer. So he sent, in verse 10, his son Joram to, to bring a gift to David because he was really pleased that David had slain uh, Hadad-Ezer. And so he brings a gift. Look at it, if you would, please. In, in the closing part of the 10th verse, and Joram, that's the son of Toy, brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass. What is he bringing? He's bringing wealth to him. What did David do with the wealth? Look at it in verse 11. Which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated of all nations which he subdued of Syria and of Moab and of the children of Ammon and of the Philistines and of Amalek and of the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. He took the possessions of those who were in rebellion against God and he dedicated those vessels to the Lord. He gave them to the Lord. He didn't keep them for himself to enrich himself. He gave them to the treasury of the Lord. Now the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse number five, the Bible says this, then thou shalt see and flow together and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The word forces there speaks of the wealth of the Gentiles. Verse six, the multitudes of camels shall cover thee, the drama Darius of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying that the heathen nations will come to the Messiah, and they will present to him their treasures. Verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 60, Therefore thy gates shall be open continually, and they shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring unto thee the forces, again, the wealth, the treasures of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be uh, brought. In other words, the kings of this earth will bring their treasures to the Lord, and the gates of the city will remain open night and day because of the influx of the treasures that will be given to God in his kingdom. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, it's interesting to note that when the wise men showed up in Bethlehem and found the Lord Jesus, they fulfilled in part this prophecy. Because the Bible says when they opened their treasures, they presented unto him, the babe, gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. 
You see, it is as Haggai said in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. You see, this earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. You see, David dedicated that which he had, his material goods, he dedicated that to the Lord. Why did he do so? Because David wanted to honor God. What was David's desire? Chapter 7, to build a house for the Lord he would not be able to build that house. Now, I would be honest. I would imagine David was filled with disappointment. But instead of pouting about that, instead of getting upset with God about it, what did he do? He rejoiced in the fact that God said, your son's going to build it. And do you know what? David would never walk in that temple. Never. He would never step foot in that temple. He would never see the glory and splendor of that beautiful temple. But let me tell you what David did. He saw it in his heart. And he gave everything he could. The Bible said he prepared for that temple abundantly. First Kings chapter 7, verse 51. The Bible says this, And Solomon brought in the things which David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and the vessels that he put among the treasures of the house of the Lord. You see, when we dedicate our vessel unto the Lord, that means ourselves. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, when we present to him our vessel, and he deserves it, he gets all of us, including our treasure. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse. That's what the Lord said. You see, David realized if the temple was going to be built, he would have to give, he would have to sacrifice, and and he could see God's work done. You see, when we are devoted to Christ, we have no problem dedicating to Christ that which is ours because really, ultimately, where does it belong? It belongs to him. As a church that has endeavored to step forward and and trust God and, and believe God as he has led us now, to purchase property and a building. What is it that God wants to do there? He wants his name to be magnified there. Is he worthy of that? Absolutely. What will it require of us? It will require our silver and our gold. It will require us. It will require all of our love and devotion and our dedication. May God help us to be faithful. You see, when the Lord is the king, When God rules in our lives, we'll fight the battles and subdue the enemies of the Lord. When the Lord is the king, when God is the God of our lives, we will dedicate the spoil unto him because he is worthy. And then finally, we'll see a third thing. David reigned over the people of the Lord. He reigned. He ruled. Now, we know David had been anointed king. We've been following him for a long time. And we know the kingdom was finally united. Israel and Judah is finally united. David's enemies are defeated. He has rest. He has peace. And now he is executing his rule. He is carrying out his daily responsibilities and he is leading the people. 
Now notice some things here that we find. Look at verse 13. And David got him a name when he returned for smiting of the Syrians in the valley of salt, being 18,000 men. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom put he garrisons. And all they of Edom became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. Now we find out that when the king reigns, his name will be magnified. I want to ask you a question. Are you magnifying the name of Jesus? If you belong to him, you bear his name. That means your attitudes, your actions, your words, the things you do, the way you conduct your life, it all reflects upon him. Are you magnifying the name of Jesus? That is a name that uh, the apostle said in, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. He said this, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one way to be saved of your sin and live eternally with God, and that is through the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you called on that name? When you call on that name, what is it you're doing? You're acknowledging that he is Christ, the Son of God. He is the only way to heaven. You're acknowledging that you are a sinner, and you're calling on him in faith, trusting in his redemptive work on your behalf to save you of your sin. And the Bible said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord in faith, believing, trusting Christ, shall be saved. Have you called on that name? And if you've called on that name, dear friend, are you magnifying that name? The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, this is how we are to pray. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Jesus said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We are to exalt the name of Jesus. The Bible says that his name is a name that is highly exalted. Philippians 2, verse 9 and 10. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. He has a name which is above every name. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 34, verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let me just give you a word of caution. When you use his name, don't use it as a byword or a curse word. The Bible says that's taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Bible said that God will not hold you guiltless. He will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. I want to tell you that in our language of this day, our lingo, we use the name of God in vain so often. Our trite expressions, our social media posts, this world condemns the name of Christ and uses his name as a byword. God's people are to magnify his name. He is our king. He's our savior. He's our sovereign. And so we magnify his name. And then we submit to his righteous reign. We submit to his righteous reign. Look at it again. Verse 15, and David reigned over all Israel. And David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. We have people who march in the streets of our cities and towns in America and they're demanding justice. They want judgment. The problem is the justice they want is a perverted view of justice. And there'll be no justice and righteousness in this world until Jesus reigns. There's no party on this earth that will bring us righteous reign. No political affiliation that you can make that will bring into us a, a, a period of judgment and justice. 
I talked this morning at 8.30 about the Me Too movement, which is a movement that's swept through Hollywood and sweeping through our culture. And, and it's, a, it's a movement that condemns sexual abuse. But it's, it's amazing to me the hypocrisy of an industry that has promoted perversion and iniquity for all of these years is now, is now protesting the fruit of what they've promoted. And let me tell you, they're as sincere, you know, as, as, they, as they can be. No, they're not sincere. They're not, that's a sarcastic statement. They're not at all sincere. They want to be politically correct. They want the applause and accolades of men but they still promote their smut and their filth. Just, just in an article the other day that spoke of some of the films that have come out recently that were, that were uh, at a film festival, and, and, and the reporter talked about the people, even in this culture, who couldn't handle the wickedness and the violence and the debauchery that was portrayed in those films, getting up and leaving the theater. Well, I applaud them for doing that. I applaud them for doing that. But listen... That's hypocrisy. If you want justice and judgment, there's only one place you're going to find it. That's in Jesus Christ. And he will rule in justice and judgment, in righteousness. And by the way, all those clamoring for justice better hope they never get it. Because if they do, it won't be good. We ought to be clamoring for mercy. And the good news is that if we will, he'll give it to us. But there's coming a day when he'll set all the wrongs right. Sometimes we look at our world and we look at all the wrongs and, and we get really discouraged and we think, well, why would God allow all these things to happen? Let me just tell you that God is God and the God of the whole earth will do right and the God of the whole earth will one day make it all right. So bow the knee to him and allow him to reign. And you have a choice to make. And that choice that you should make is that while the world lives unjustly and unrighteously, you can choose to honor Christ and live and submit under his righteous rule. So may God help us to do so. The Bible says, and David reigned over all Israel. And one day I'm glad to tell you that Jesus will reign over all. Does he reign in your heart? Do you know him as Savior? If you haven't received him, I implore you, I beg of you, come today and find mercy before it's everlastingly too late. Because he will come in judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. You will face judgment. So before you do, will you receive his mercy? Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used his word to speak to you today. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you'll find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.